Welcome back to I Gen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shee. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. And today's hashtag Jill's Pin is a brooch of the White House. And that's because both of our guests, who we are very excited about featuring today and together for their first in-depth conversation, um, both worked in the White House when the events that they became pivotal to happened. So that's why I'm wearing a White House pin. All it takes is one voice, one person with enough courage to speak the truth to change the entire course of history. Get ready because on today, on IGN Politics has two people who quite literally stood by themselves and spoke out with the entire world watching their every move and change the outcome of historic events. Our two guests uh, of them, our first is Cassidy Hutchinson. You certainly remember her as one of the stars during the January 6th committee hearings. She shared with the world compelling details about what Trump and his team were doing on January 6th, before January 6th, and it was definitely world-changing. It um, was the work that they were doing to change the outcome of the 2020 election. Cassidy, at that time, was serving as the chief of staff to the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, during the Trump administration's last days. And she is now out with a wonderful tell-all book titled Enough. And our second guest today is the person who inspired Cassidy Hutchinson to come forward with her story in front of the entire world at such a young age. And he is Alexander Butterfield. For those old enough to remember Alex, Chu was a star witness during the Watergate hearings. And like Cassidy, served as the assistant to the chief of staff during the Nixon administration. Jill has known him since that time and can add details of the drama of his revelation of the White House taping system. And it was dramatic. Um, And it's one of those things that, like 9-11, if you were alive then, you remember exactly where you were when you found out that there were tapes. And even Comey reminded us by saying, oh, Lordy, I hope there are tapes. Um, Anyway, this episode will be inspiring, I believe, for everyone who has a heart and any ethics, and hopefully it will get you to think about the people who use their voices to speak out and how far we've come and the dangers that still lie ahead of us. With that, I am so excited to have both of you here, Cassidy and Alex. It is a real honor to have you on our show. And as I mentioned, it is the first time the two of you are together uh, for an in-depth conversation. And each of you has spoken to the other privately. And we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. Thank you very much. Thank you guys for having us. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. And thank you so much, both of you, for being here. I think the world knows the two of you as the people who spoke out when so many people wouldn't. Um, But we want to start the episode by giving people a little insight into how both of you actually got started in this world of politics, because Cassidy, you were barely out of college when you started, and Alex, you were older, but in the world of politics today, you're still relatively young, or you were relatively young. So I'm wondering first, what got you both into politics and public service, and what leads to someone to serve in such a high capacity at such a young age? Um, Alex, do you want to go first? You know, I grew up, uh, my father was a 
naval aviator and I was a military guy in the Air Force and uh, uh, had a great, uh, I, I, I loved everything about uh, what I did. I was, I, I flew fighters and uh, that's, that's, that's really what I did as a young man. I was a fighter pilot in the Air Force and I flew with the air demonstration team, of a team of four airplanes called the Sky Blazers. Ooh. We were the only air demonstration team in Europe at that time. I, I, I was in Europe. And I just had a, I loved every minute of my uh, career uh, because it had to, we were flying fighters and there's nothing more fun than that. And but, so how did you end up in the White House? How did you go from being an aviator to a White House aide to Richard Nixon? Well, <laughs> I like to think that I was always and still am a, a fighter pilot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, gee, I I forget how all of that happened. I really do. Uh, <clears throat> I, so, of course, you went on after something people don't know is by the time you testified, I think you were already the head of the FAA. So you kept your your piloting uh, experience relevant, didn't you? Yes, I, yeah, I did. I was the uh, administrator of the FAA for a while, uh, which was great fun. And... Uh, and I can't tell you how much I loved flying and uh, uh, also being on the, the Sky Blazer yeah. team. That, uh, that was, that, those are days I'll never forget. Uh, the Sky Blazers, incidentally, was the only American air demonstration team in Europe. We were not here in the United States. But anyway, it was all great fun. And, and what uh, about you, Cassidy? What I was about say, you? Alex, Alex also had the connection with H.R. Haldeman, right? Before, like when Nixon was elected, you knew H.R. Haldeman from high, uh, from college. Yeah, I was Haldeman's deputy there for, I guess, about four years at the White House. And, uh, oh, I knew Haldeman very well from uh, when I was at UCLA. Uh, my fraternity, Sigma Nu, was just across the street from his fraternity, Beta, and we used to urinate on their lawn <laughs> on almost a nightly basis. But uh, but, <laughs> but anyway, I, Alex, I, I have. Alex, I have to say, I, I'm currently at UCLA as um, an undergrad, and so if I ever get the chance to visit those fraternities, I will um, never see it the same way again. Because I'll know <laughs> that you're you're in it. Maybe has lasted this long. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, so you actually had sort of the same job that Cassidy, because you also worked for the chief of staff, and Bob Haldeman was Nixon's chief of staff. Uh, he ended up indicted and convicted. Um, so far, your chief of staff, Cassie, hasn't, but how did you get connected to, to Mark Meadows? So 
I did not grow up in a political family, but from a young age, my uncle, who I was very, very close with, uh, was in the military and was relocated from Indiana to Washington. So it was really that first trip to Washington. And I don't, the only thing I've been able to somewhat adequately describe it as is almost what I look at now as a, almost sort of like a sense of premonition. Mm. Because I was eight, eight or nine years old the first time I came to DC. And I just remember feeling so drawn to the city and knowing that I wanted to live here. And we moved around a lot when I was a child, uh, mostly around New Jersey, although we moved to Indiana briefly. But I remember when we left, I begged my mom, I was like, can we please move to DC? Can we please move to DC? And at the time she was like, when you're, when you're a grown up, you can move to DC on your own. So that was my goal. So then I slowly evolved into wanting to pursue a path in public service, although I didn't really know what that could look like. My family was fairly, if not moderately skeptical of the government. So it wasn't necessarily the friendliest environment to have that career aspiration. Um, but when I, uh, once I was in high school, I watched very closely the 2012 camp, uh, campaign against Mitt Romney and uh, President Barack Obama and sort of knew that politics were my, was my calling. Wow. Um, I went to college and I was a uh, sophomore and I applied to every single House Republican office and by, I guess, a stroke of good luck, I received an internship with uh, then Majority Whip Steve Scalise. So now this is the summer of wow. 2017. And I used to say, and honestly, I, I still do, like that internship set me up, I used to say for the rest of my life, that internship set me up for everything that has happened since like without and I, I say that I, I'm not big into entertaining hypotheticals but I was placed with the member services team that summer um so for people that don't really know member services that's majority what they're in charge of knowing every single house republican knowing them well enough to know how they're going to vote on bills or how like what makes them tick and what would make them want to vote on a bill um and I was I I, I got the bug that summer Following summer, I interned in the White House Office of Legislative Affairs, where I was hired full-time when I graduated college in 2019. And um, I was placed with the House team. So again, sort of like a member services job. I was in charge of managing all, all House members at that point, but primarily Republicans. Um, and... I mean, I, I got close with several members of Congress, but that fall is when the first impeachment inquiry opened, which Mark Meadows was a fairly significant figure in. And we started working together very closely throughout that period of the first impeachment trial. And soon after that, he was named the chief of staff. So I think, you know, I would defer to him on why he decided to hire me, but I would, for speaking for myself, uh, yeah, we did have a very close working relationship, and I think that he saw me as someone that not only understood internal dynamics at the White House, but mm -hmm. understood the dynamics of how the White House should interact with Capitol Hill. And that was really important to him you know, as a former member 
and coming into a position in, in the executive branch for the first time to have somebody that sort of knew how that all operated. So, I mean, that's my, that's my medium length answer of how well, I ended up where I Yeah. I, I, it's incredible. And, and, you know, I spent um, the last two summers in DC and I was so shocked by the number of young people there who are interns who are young staffers. But it, I, I want to ask you in the Trump administration, how many other people were your age? Did you have anyone who came close to kind of where you fell or were you sort of the only one in that environment? And how did that feel? Um, you know, there, there were several you know, I don't want to put a numerical quantity on it. There were a lot of, most of the assistants to either like a, a deputy assistant to the president or an assistant to the president were within my age group. I would say like plus or, well, I would say plus because I was probably one of the, amongst the youngest, but uh, maybe like three years older than me. In terms of the chief of staff's office, though, I was the youngest person that, worked in the chief of staff's office. To my knowledge, I'm the youngest person that had ever been commissioned in the chief of staff's office, a commissioned officer, which is that you just receive a particular title and it's a the civil, civilian equivalent of like a military ranking. Um, so I was a special assistant to the president, was my commission. And then my title, it fluctuated throughout my tenure with uh, Mr. Meadows. But uh, I wouldn't say I worked very closely with the people within my age. Now, naturally, I sort of did like on a day to day or just conversational basis because I would run into them and we had friendly and cordial relationships. But I worked primarily with the people Mark would meet with and communicated with them directly. It was just the most efficient way for my job to function. Um, and he, we also had a, he also had a scheduler who was in charge of communicating with assistants to set up meetings. So I I want to go to another question, but. I can't resist the temptation since you said you started out as an intern to Steve Scalise, who has, of course, been a major player in the last few weeks. Um, if you've stayed in touch with him, if you know how he's feeling, um, I, I want to say to our audience, we're recording this before we know the outcome of the second vote for speaker. Um, the first vote, that is the, the first vote with Jordan as the nominee for the Republicans. Um, and he didn't carry the first vote by 20 or more uh, losses from the Republican tally. But um, Steve Scalise got some votes in that. And I'm just wondering how you feel, how you think he might feel. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of as difficult to speculate on that because I, I don't know. I, this, this is the actually the second Congress uh, that I haven't been personally mm. part of. Um, and I have not spoken to Steve. I have not spoken to Steve since before uh, inauguration day, actually. So I've spoken to some of his staff members before I testified and I, because I was friends with many of them. Um, but what I will say on that, you know, I want to be delicate too because we don't know the outcome of everything. But, you know, I think what is happening in the House right now is not only an embarrassment to the Republican Party, but it's an embarrassment to the United States. You know, it's not even just our political system that they're gambling with. They're they're gambling with the 
the peace and security of other nations at this point. And, you know, there has not ever been a time there, there have been several moments where uh, I think that everybody should rise up and realize their collective duty is to put party over or to put the country over party. And this is just another one of those examples of the selfish intentions of, I would say what I call the current Republican party or the the Republican Party as it has evolved. It is not the Republican Party that I personally identify with. Um, you know, and I but I would hope that they can you know, come to a consensus not only for the sake of the body and the sanctity of the body, but for the sake of the American people and global security. I think Democrats and Republicans, uh, uh, Republicans of the kind that I grew up with uh, when there was bipartisan dialogue and when there were real philosophical differences, not, not what's going on now. I think yeah. they all, everybody would agree with what you're saying. Um, yeah. well, and it's sort of sad that we're at that point. I had this conversation yeah. actually last week with Congressman Jamie Raskin. It's like, we're sitting there, we were at uh, an event at politics and with, in coordination with politics and pros, but it was at George Washington university. It was a completely normal dialogue and we were sitting there at one well, should always should be right but i we, i was sitting there, i was like you know i said something to the effect of you know I, I hope that there is one day jamie where we can have a conversation about substantive policy issues yeah. and we're not you know that the, there are much more things that unite us and divide us and i think that that's also what that conversation is emblematic of but it's there's just it we are so far gone from there being any source semblance of normalcy and decency within the current Republican party that you know, it's, it's a shame. And yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, well, before, you're right. Jill, yeah. I was going to say before Jill asked the next question, um, right before we recorded, Jim Jordan was asked a question about whether or not he would ever work with Democrats to find some sort of bipartisan compromise with the speakership. And he said, not one Republican is going to find is willing to work with Democrats to find a bipartisan um, compromise. So it's just sort of how far we've come. But go ahead, Joe. And I was just going to say that Alex and I, of course, come from the generation where there was bipartisanship, where Democrats and Republicans had dinner together, mm -hmm. socialized together, talked about the viewpoints of each and how they could come to a compromise that would serve the ends of both. And um, I, I long for a return to that. Um, but yeah. both of you went through unbelievable things. You, you saw and reported things that are not normal in any administration from the past. And um, I'm just wondering uh, what it was like for you being in that situation and how long it took you to realize that something was really potentially illegal and dangerous for democracy. And I, I, I would like to ask Alex and you both um, to, to answer about how you first came to realize that you were working in an administration where there was there were crimes going on and that there were things that you both felt compelled to report. So Alex, you want to Go first, or do Cassidy? Do you want to go first? Would you like to go, Alex, oh. or do you want me to? Go ahead, Cassidy, and then Alex, you'll you'll follow Cassidy. Are you ready, Alex? 
<laughs> you want to start? After you, Cassidy. Okay. Um, I, I talk about this a lot in the book, and I don't want... There's a very long answer, and that's what's in the book, but there's the shorter slash mid-length answer. And I, uh, you know, this is also something I sort of, I struggle with to explain. Because unless you really know or have studied the mentality of not only the Trump administration, but the Trump movement and also far right wing media it's it's sort of different difficult to just wrap into one simple response what i will say on this is you know i i did very loyally serve in the administration and i so i, I wrote the book as i was experiencing things in real time intentionally because i wanted people to sort of try to grasp a sense of what i was thinking at the time um, and that continued through the moment I actually testified and afterwards. There were several moments throughout my tenure with Mark, the chief of staff, where I would raise an eyebrow, but also you know, sort of be jarred and think, you know, maybe there's something more going on here and I should pay a little bit more attention. But then I was either like, my subconscious at that point that would kick in or just the natural machinery of the MAGA movement of the Trump movement where it's you're almost programmed to make excuses for what you see and what you're experiencing and I'm not proud of this and uh, you know there are many mistakes I've made along the way and but you know regardless uh I would say during the post-election period is when I became very cognizant of my dissonance with how I felt about the results of the election and how we were handling things. Now, just to also be clear, I think that every political candidate, whether they're the president or at a local level, if they feel that the results of the election are close enough to call a challenge to it, like it is within our system of lots of people to file lawsuits. <laughs> And to accept what the rule of law says. When we, when the administration began rejecting what the courts were saying is when I, again, started really disagreeing with it. But at that point too, I saw, I, you know, I, I blamed the staff for giving the president information that he was taking to be true. I thought it was completely our fault. Um, you know, that fast forward to January 6th, which obviously I think we can all agree here was not only a horrific day for our democracy, but a real stain on our nation's history. And I was very outspoken after January 6th internally at the White House with my colleagues, including with Mr. Meadows, about how I felt that we, the administration, were responsible for what happened that day. Um, I was committed to move to Florida with the former president or soon to be former president. And it wasn't until the last minute that I changed that. Because again, at the time I was programmed, I had been programmed either myself or just by nature of who I was around to, um, you know, I wanted to help him. And I thought that I could be a sound mind and an objective voice around him 
And again, I, I look back now and I have very different feelings about that. And I think it's, I, I know it's a good thing that I didn't move down to Florida because it was in that year that I really began to look deeper within myself and realize that I had been part of something that, you know, I, I, and I, I am hesitant to assign terms to it, like whether it was illegal. You know, I think that that is for the courts to decide. And we see that he has, I think, been charged, I believe 91 time, 91 yes. criminal or federal indictments or uh, federal charges. It's federal state. Uh, yes. So, you know, I would count on our rule of law to say whether or not he committed a crime, but I felt very strongly that I should be a voice and I wanted to be a voice that helped shed light on what I experienced, whether or not it constituted a crime. I felt it was wrong. I felt that it was an obstruction to our constitution. I felt it was the biggest threat our democracy has faced in my lifetime, certainly, um, if not in modern American history. You know, but I also, I had this sort of moral tug of war in myself. And again, I look back now and I am ashamed of that, but I I still felt a sense of loyalty and obligation to not only the people that I worked with, but him. Um, hmm. And I, so I, I was also, so then I was subpoenaed, severely financially limited. And I ended up with, I, I looked for an, my own independent attorney for about three months before I was served the subpoena and then was assigned a Trump world attorney. So that's my, I'll, I'll leave it there because I'm, I'm sure we'll get into the, we more. can get <laughs> into that. Yeah. I, I, I want to go to Alex, if, Alex, um, I know you struggled um, with the same question about when to come forward. And you knew something that almost no one in the world, the president Nixon knew, and you knew, and maybe a few secret service agents, but no one else knew the answer to this. And you had gotten subpoenaed and you came in to talk to the Senate staff on a Friday. And, you know, you can tell the story better than I can, but you, you had said you thought about how you were going to answer the question and that you weren't going to volunteer any information, but that if you were asked a specific question, that you were going to tell the truth. So can you talk about that? About First of all, how did you learn there was a taping system? How did you know that? Well, I think I was one of the persons that put the taping system in, into action. Uh, that's how I knew about it. Right. The I, president asked you to do it. Yeah. And in, in those days, I was sort of a, a liaison guy in the White House with the Secret Service. I actually, um, oh, at one point, uh, chose who the next uh, uh, person uh, uh, was to to run the se to run the secret service. Mm. I was pretty close to the secret service, and as I say, yeah, kind of a liaison guy at the White House for them. So, uh, um, you, you know, I I felt very at home, and uh, I didn't think that what we we're doing was wrong. 
Uh, and, uh, well, ask me a question and I'll- Okay, so, so you, you were asked by the president to install a voice activated system that he wouldn't have to turn on and off, but when he was in the Oval Office or in some of the other offices, um, like the one across the street, his little hideaway office, that it would automatically record for history um, his conversations. And you went in on a Friday, you were asked a very specific question about Mr. Butterfield, do you know about any taping system? And it was the direct question that you hoped you wouldn't get. But when you did, you had already decided beforehand that you were going to answer honestly. And so you said, yes, I do. And that, of course, led to one, the most well-kept secret in the whole history of Washington, as far as I can tell, because no one found out about it until Monday when you were publicly testifying before the Senate committee headed by Senator Irvin. And you were asked the same question. And maybe we can, Victor, get a tape of that question and add it to our show notes, because there's a long pause where you're like, oh, God, I wish I didn't have to say this. At least that's how I'm interpreting it. I don't know if that's how you really felt. And then you said, yes. And that led to a subpoena from our office for nine tape recordings that we felt were in the category of executive privilege won't protect these because they're a crime fraud exception. And um, we subpoenaed them and eventually got at least, well, I would say we got six of them because two were missing and one had an 18 minute gap. Um, but it was a very well-kept secret. And, um, you know, how did, how did people in the White House react to you when you came back? Were they mad at you for admitting this thing? Did anybody pressure you after that? No, I don't recall anybody being mad or, and, and although it, it's hard for me to remember a lot of this, but, <clears throat> but there was, no, I didn't, I never did feel that people were upset with me, except maybe the president. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, I was very close to President Nixon. I knew him so well and worked with him. And uh, Haldeman was the White House chief of staff. I was Haldeman's deputy. Uh, but Haldeman had an office way down the hall and not close to uh, the Oval Office. And, and my office had joined the Oval Office for all those years. And uh, so I, uh, uh, yeah, so I, I was the guy that really worked uh, uh, every day, every morning, uh, all, all day uh, with the president. And, and um, uh, I was the, only guy who was allowed to put anything on his desk or take anything off his desk. Haldeman, who was my boss, uh, had an office quite a ways away from the Oval Office. And uh, although he was the Grand Mogul uh, and I was his deputy, I was the guy that dealt 
with the president all the morning when the people are yeah. going in and out of the Oval Office. I sort of felt that I ran the Oval Office. The Oval Office was my beat. And uh, that's where I I was, right? My office adjoined the Oval. And uh, so that's where I was for the whole time that Haldeman was White House Chief of Staff. And I was the uh, deputy, his deputy. I mean, the, the story is so powerful and coming out to tell the world the entire truth. Um, and Alex, I'm sure you you know this, but you know, Cassidy often cites you and, and kind of your coming forward as the reason why she came forward. And I'm wondering, Cassidy, can you talk a little bit more about that and how important it was to look back in history and see people like Alex who used their voice when so many people at the time didn't? Yeah, I mean, that was uh, a really profound moment for me, uh, which I, I've gotten a little bit of heat for because I, I probably should have known who Mr. Butterfield was out of my frantic Google search one evening. Um, so I essentially, I had testified twice behind closed doors to the committee with my Trump counsel. Um, really working to balance the interests of what I had wanted to personally accomplish, but didn't didn't feel empowered to. It's probably the best way of putting it. Um, less diplomatic way of saying, you know, I gave less than complete answers to direct questions in a lot of instances and didn't share my full account of my recollection of events when I was asked about it. In early April of 2022, after I testified twice, there were several pages of my both of my transcripts published because they had filed um, uh, a motion, a, a summary judgment against mm -hmm. Mr. Meadows for not complying with the subpoena. And I was reading through the pages of my transcript and I had sort of like, I tried to shove under the carpet it, mentally of like, knowing that I didn't do the right thing, but feeling and trying to accept that I did according to the people who I was surrounded by at the time. Um, but I just had this, you know, I, I call it sort of a mental breakdown, but it was it's also a, a very, hopefully the most severe moral crossroads I ever come to in my life because I, on one hand, knew who I wanted to be, knew I wasn't honoring who that person was. But on the other hand, I'd, I, saw and I knew who I had become and was continuing to become and I knew that I had emotionally and mentally to try to correct course one for the nation's history but two also for my own conscience uh I reached out to a member of congress who did not serve on the January 6th committee who told me to go look in the mirror and he, I was on the phone with this member and I, he asked me if I could live with myself for the rest of my life, knowing like what I had said and how I felt about the situation. So that's when I, uh, I what I term personally as started back channeling um, with the committee, but I only got the courage to do that after reading the last of the president's men that Alex worked on with Mr. Woodward. Um, 
And as I was, you know, I, so I, I was frantically driving to New Jersey one night and I, you know, I was very isolated. It was one of the darkest periods emotionally of my life that I had been in because I didn't really know how to get out of the situation that I found myself in. And I also felt like I needed someone to look to for courage. And also as an example of moral character, and I knew of John Dean, um, but I did not feel that, you know, I, I had this perception in my mind of Mr. Dean that, you know, he was the white house council and I was nowhere near the level of the white house council. So I was, I Google Watergate thinking there had to be somebody that was an assistant to the chief of staff or deputy assistant to the chief of staff who testified during all of this. And I find Alex's name on Wikipedia and realize that we had almost identical titles. So then I opened a new one and I'm like, there ha he had to have written a book he did with Mr. Woodward. Right. And I read through the book several times and you know, there were a lot of profound elevations that I found within those pages. But after each time I read it, my resolve strengthened knowing that I didn't feel alone anymore. I had someone to look to that I didn't think that any of the information that I knew could potentially, at the time, I didn't think it could potentially be as damaging as what Alex knew. But I saw an example of somebody who didn't want to voluntarily come forward, who wanted to prior or wanted to keep a sense of loyalty to his boss unless he was asked to do the right thing. And I felt the same in a lot of ways, but I was asked to do the right thing and I felt that I hadn't. So it was Alex's resolve and Alex's strength and his example that gave me the strength to come forward and continue cooperating with the committee and eventually leading to the live testimony. Wow, that is a powerful, powerful story. Um, Alex, do you remember seeing Cassidy testify and, and how you felt knowing that you had had a role in her coming forward? And, and of course, Cassidy, you're understating the impact your testimony had. It became, it was a very powerful piece of testimony and did make a huge difference in how people perceived January 6th. So, um, it was, it was very important testimony. So, but, I, you know, at the, at the time, I again, I wasn't really fully aware of that until I had switched legal counsel. Yeah. yeah. So, Alex, do you, do you remember hearing her testify? Do you remember hearing uh, or seeing Cassidy on television testifying uh, to the January sixth events that took took me by surprise and. Uh, changed, I think, a lot of Americans view in the same way that your testimony changed how people felt about what was going on at the White House and their, you know, their stonewalling eventually with the tapes. Uh, but it, you must have felt really good seeing her come forward and bravely confronting the truth and testifying. Yes, I did. I was I was very impressed. Uh by Cassidy's testimony. And uh, as I've told a number of people, when she spoke, uh, she was she was herself. I don't I don't uh, she didn't need any guidance at all. You knew that what she said was coming from her heart. And uh, it was she was very effective that way. She was truly impressive. And uh, I was I was uh, 
taken by that. I, I, I thought it was excellent the way she handled herself. And I've told her so. I've since come to know her pretty well. And uh, But at that time, I had nothing to do with, I had no knowledge that <laughs> I had any part to play in that. I didn't know that she was... Uh, that I have this been book so on my pillow every night. <laughs> uh, I did not know that I was uh, uh, being uh, having always being an example for her, but uh, I'm proud of that if that's the case. And well, but, you should well, be. She is her own person, she's very much, uh, you know, she doesn't need, I don't think she needs much guidance. She knows what to say and how to say it. Truth isn't hard to remember when it's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a Mark Twain quote or that's it's something along those lines. <laughs> it's easier not to make a mistake when it's the truth that, than that, that's trying the to remember a lie. <laughs> that's for sure. But yeah. Um, well, yeah. it's funny too, because I was, I mean, I sat, I, after I testified, I remember reading some articles. I tried to tune out the news as well as I could, but yeah, I was I was poised and I was well spoken. And in truth, I was sitting there like it was like the fear of God was struck into me. But I but it's also I say that, but I also had this overwhelming sense of calm that had washed over me once Liz Cheney and I had begun to exchange and dialogue because I, I knew I was doing the right thing. And I knew that I was doing right by my country and doing right by the oath I swore and was now upholding to actually protect. Um, and I didn't go into that day. You know, I went into that day and still to this day, I, I told the truth about events that I had witnessed or that had been recounted to me by potential witnesses and all I could do was share what I knew and answer the questions that I had been asked. Um, you know, I, I wish I wish it hadn't taken me as long to get to that point. But what I will say is, you know, I obviously I'm glad I did. And I wish that more people would. And I, I still hold on to hope that way because it's the, you know, we have examples right. of people like Alex. Um in our history. And yeah, I, I, do, I do fear that in 50 years, or hopefully, hopefully never, but or however long it might be, but hopefully never that there would be another individual working in a corrupt presidential administration. And I would hope that they had the resolve to turn to history and see if there was somebody that also did the right thing, because it is a very isolating place to be. And I'm very grateful for one, Alex sharing a story and being willing to have it in writing with Mr. Woodward, but also for the friendship that we've been able yeah. to foster since. Yeah, it, I, I, sure. oh, yeah, go ahead, Joe. Go, go ahead, Victor. I was gonna say, I, I, I hope so as well. I hope we never find ourselves in this moment again, but I also wanna ask both of you um, because you both testified at very different times in our history. Um, like we mentioned in terms of bipartisanship, but also in terms of the media landscape and, Alex, I want to ask you, because Jill and I, we often talk about um, the difference between now and then in terms of the media networks. When you testified, 
it was at a time when there were only three media networks. And I'm wondering, did you ever question or think about whether your words would be spun or kind of misconstrued by the media at all? No, I never did. Yeah, and I bet you did, Cassidy. I thought about everything. <laughs> uh, which is a, a natural product of our times. And I, I know I touched earlier on what I probably should have a better phrasing for, but the Republican machine behind conservative messaging and the re Republican messaging, you know, whether it's Fox News or the personalities online, I will give the Republican Party one slight, very hesitantly, but... Uh, not here and that's that they are powerful messengers and i i know that because i've been on the inside of it i've been on the inside of trump world knowing how they curate messages against their detractors and also against people that they just in general disagree with and ideas that they in general disagree with so i was also very hyper cognizant that day of my physical presentation um I'm trying to make sure i didn't show signs of being nervous you know, I obviously was. Um, I would be a little apprehensive if anybody went in completely confident. But, uh, all power to them if they were, though. Not me, but I, you know, I, I knew that that could be twisted easily, uh, and it I, it probably was. But also, I, I, I have, I always try to choose my words very carefully because I don't want to irresponsibly twist words like. I've seen Republicans irresponsibly do and making sure that I could be as objective and factual was important for the integrity of my testimony and preserving the integrity of the committee's investigation, any subsequent government investigations, but also preserving the integrity and truth of what happened that day, you know, just to make sure that there wasn't anything that was embellished or over-exaggerated. Like I, and that wasn't, that part wasn't difficult, but I knew that again, if I didn't choose every single word carefully or, you know, it's, it's a different, like when you have to take that into account too, it's, that's a, an added layer of stress. It is. And it's, it's such a different time when you have social media that, and, and right wing media that will deliberately convey disinformation, misinformation, twist what's said. And that simply wasn't the case. We had an agreed upon set of facts during the Watergate era. And we debated policy implications of those facts, but we didn't debate the existence of facts. Um, so your testimony was subject. I mean, no one questioned what Alex said. It was, he said it, it's true. Whereas with you, it was sort of a, an attack on you uh, that people did. And, um, you know, I'm, I sometimes wonder if Fox News had existed when Nixon was president, would he have survived? And I think the answer is he would have. It, it, although, on the other hand, he knew shame and he cared about governing. And so he might have resigned anyway. But it would have been a very different thing than we have now. And um, I, I think you're saying that your approach to testifying was um, somewhat shaped by knowing in advance that there was this alternative fact universe. Is that is that true? Did yeah, it I, affect I you? Uh, 
it affected me. I wouldn't say it was shaped by it because I don't want to give the impression that I testified in a particular particular way to yeah. make sure that the media specifically wouldn't misconstrue things. I, I testified a particular way because I wanted to be very objective and factual about everything for, again, the integrity of the testimony and the facts of what happened that day. But also because I, I again, like, like what you said, if there was any word even accidentally misspoken or that, yeah, but I also went into it very well aware that many things I was going to say would be challenged. I, I, I had made peace with that. You know, I, again, I, I know what I know. And if people have other recollections of things or the way that things unfolded that day, then I think, that, you know, perhaps they have now, but at the time on June 20th, 2022, they should have contacted the committee that afternoon or the next day and decided to agree and comply with their subpoena. Um, Unfortunately, for in many cases, that didn't happen. And there were many men who continued to hide behind anonymity and put out statements not directly contributed to themselves to dispute what I said. And, yeah. you know, I, you can do it under oath. In terms of your both, um, well, well, two things. One, I just want to go back a little with Cassidy is that I, both of you had a dramatic impact on public opinion. And I, I'm just, Cassie, I'm wondering if there's one thing that you think people learned from your testimony about President Trump um, and what it's important to understand as he is a candidate again for uh, nomination to be the Republican candidate. And you could throw into that also, if you still consider yourself a, I don't know what you call them now, but an old GOP person <laughs> from when the Republican party was the grand old party. Um, yeah. You know, what keeps you in the Republican party and, and what do you wish the Republicans would do today? Yeah, I, I do. I, I've, I've gotten some heat for this and I, I, so I want to be delicate and careful with it, but I, and I'm not ashamed of it. I just want to make sure I approach it the correct way. Because I, I do still consider myself a conservative. Yeah, a, a, and I always have been on the more moderate side, the conservative slash Republican Party, whatever we would like to call it. Um, you know, it's it's difficult because I I do believe in many of the core principles of the party. And I think that there's a big disconnect in the public perception of what those core principles are because they have been so publicly misconstrued at this point. And again, this is all my opinion. Um, but what I also will add to that is if Trump, you know, I, I think that every American in this next year has an obligation as an American to make sure that Trump is not the nominee on the Republican ticket next year, um, which unfortunately looks likely, but it doesn't mean that it can't, it doesn't mean that it has to happen. So, you know, I, I view the platform that I have now I, as somebody that was on the inside that was not a never Trumper and that was 
very much part of that movement and his administration until I wasn't. But he's also somebody that never would have called me a rhino. He knows at a point I was very loyal to him. And I, again, I say this all with the hindsight that I have now. And we've slowly seen more voices come out speaking to the dangers of Donald Trump. But I think with the platform I have now being able to communicate with people in a responsible way. So they listen, you know, I, I didn't testify. I, I, I testified to tell the truth and to make sure Americans knew the facts of what happened that day, whether they wanted to believe them or not. I didn't testify that day, hoping or expecting everyone to believe me. What I hope that I can do with the platform I have right now um, is encourage more people to listen. And I know that sort of sounds a little hokey, and I, but I think when you go into a conversation with people who might be on, you know, there's there are people in both camps that you're, we're never going to get. There's people on the very, very far left who are never going to like me, no matter what I say or do, and that's, that's okay. There are people on the far right who are going to always think I'm the greatest villain to Donald John Trump, and that's also okay. That's their opinion. I'm never going to change their mind, but there is a big population of people if they aren't already have somewhat favorable views of what I did telling the truth who are what I would call the swing voter or the undecided going into next year and they might think you know Trump might be better than Biden if these people vote with their pocketbooks or whatnot whatever their reasons might be to be able to generate a responsible conversation where I can speak with them and so they listen. They don't have to decide to believe me. And I'm not trying to convince anyone to believe me. But I think if we listen and let other people be heard, it encourages more people to see a different side of that political issue. And it, that was something that I spent the year after the administration sort of struggling with because I, I referenced my friend Alyssa Fair Griffin fairly often, but she came out immediately after January 6th and denounced what he did what Mr. Trump did and the, what the, the administration's complicity. And I saw her get completely mutilated by the right and by the left. And it did not seem like a friendly environment for her to be in at all, but she persisted and she kept going. And, you know, I think about her and I think about Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and the members of Congress, the Republican members of Congress that gave up their seat for telling the truth. And, you know, that's, it's the force that we're fighting against, but it's, it's not an impossible task. I hope you're right because the opposite of that is fascism, dictatorship, um, and total disinformation. So I I do hope that people will hear the story that you told, hear the story that Alex told, and and I'm just wondering what gives you both the strength and, and hope for the future. Do you, do you have hope that we can, first of all, can the Republican Party be salvaged? Can there be uh, a Republican Party that represents the majority of people who I think probably identify as Republican, as opposed to the extreme right wing that is currently taking control of the party? I think there's hope for it to be salvaged. I think it, again, it would it's going to take a lot of effort and a lot of commitment from people to do the right thing. And, you know, this, this to me too, it's the problem. Donald Trump is not 
the only issue. If Donald Trump were to fall off the face of the earth tomorrow, this all wouldn't go away. You know, we have, an, as we discussed earlier, whether the the House of Representatives is in chaos right now. Uh, not because of Donald Trump, but because of this mentality that has been created by this movement. I don't, I have not given up hope that there can't be a restoration to some normalcy. Um, you know, but if he is the nominee on the ticket next year, you know, I haven't decided what I will do politically, but I don't know if I, I'm not confident I could continue to call myself or identify with the Republican party, because for me that, that really is, and maybe it should have been in 2016, should have been the breaking point for me, but it wasn't. Uh, and maybe it should have been after I testified, but it, it wasn't because I do still think that we need to have a two, two strong parties that can debate policy and issues that actually matter and that matter to Americans and matter to the prosperity of this country. And if we are going to concede that is, we're just going to allow these people take over what was once a somewhat prosperous party and the prosperous democratic party like that's you know i i don't want to concede to that but i there there has to be some resolution at some point and i think in this next year you know i think that what happens this next year will be really telling about what happens in the future but what i want to continue to do is to pass the mirror test and by doing that like, i want to make sure i do everything that i can and also so i can explain to my children and my grandchildren one day that you know, this is how history unfolded in my lifetime and there were people who stood for the right for the right things and stood for our rule of law so alex i have um one question for you because one of the things we love to do on this podcast is talk about advice for younger people. And I'm wondering what advice might you give to someone like Cassidy, any young person out there who um, look to people like you in history and wonder how they too can find and use their voice? Um, uh, well, first of all, if a young person is asked to testify, uh, they should understand that what is wanted from them is their <clears throat> genuine feeling of something. That's why they're being asked the question, what do they at their age uh, and with their experience have to say uh, to the American public? And uh, and not hesitate to just speak up. Um, uh, so I'm, I mean, that's I. I I never minded testifying if there's something I didn't know. I didn't try to answer that, and I only said things that I knew or felt I knew to be the case. And um, so as long as their questions were clear and without ambiguity, I was always willing to ask and to respond. Uh, uh, when, I th when I think back of, well, I think of uh, Sam Irwin, who was the chairman, I guess, of the Watergate yeah. committee, I forget. 
And um, he'd say, uh, meeting come to order. <laughs> and uh, the meeting would come to order. And uh, in my case, he then said, uh, Mr. Butterfield, are you aware of listening devices in the Oval Office of the President? And uh, of course, that was a deep, dark secret. And I, I was aware of it. And uh, so there was a long pause because he said, are you aware? And at that moment, I was not at all aware of anything in the Oval Office. So I said, after the long pause, I was aware of listening devices. Yes, sir. And we went on from there. But uh, 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 I, I don't think there's anything wrong with testifying. If you have something to say, say it. Don't ever make any shortcuts or, or uh, try to be cute with a committee. You just tell what you know and you can say it loud and clear and uh, rest assured that you have done the right thing. Alex, that is such an interesting insight that you just gave, because as many times as I've watched your testimony and seen that long pause, I always thought it was you taking a deep breath and saying, well, I said I was going to tell the truth if I was asked a direct question, and darn it, I just was. I'm going to have to tell the truth. But it's so interesting that you were talking about the word our versus were you. And that yeah. that's just very interesting insight to me. I, I love that. And I, I want to go on because we asked, we, we got a lot of questions when we announced that we were having the two of you as guests. Um, so our social media feeds sent us a bunch of questions. Um, I, we're almost out of time. So we're going to have to limit it to one or two of them. Um, and um, one is specifically for you, Cassidy, which is What's next for you? I, I, and I want to point out that we will have a link to your book in our show notes that everyone should get the book and read so it. Some of these user thanks you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. Um, but but I seriously, I... what is next? Are you going to write another book or are you going to go back yeah. into politics? What are you going to do? I think I'm, uh, I've, I've said all I have to say uh, in the literary sense right now. Um, I, I see what I'm doing right now as I think tangential, if not directly related to politics. You know, I, again, I, I know I touched on this earlier. I am trying to still navigate and I, I didn't ever really want or think I would have a forward facing platform, but I, I do now. And I have accepted that. And I, my goal is to always be responsible with that. And especially in this next year, I want to continue developing myself both as a professional and as somebody that hopefully people feel that they can trust enough to listen to. You know, mm -hmm. They don't have to agree with everything I say, but I think having trusted voices that are objective is important. Um, you know, and again, I, I know I said this earlier, but I do really feel that I feel, I know I feel a responsibility and I think that every American should feel a responsibility to shed light, not only what happened on January 6th, 
but the dangers of, of what could happen in a second Trump term, because if it is a Biden-Trump ticket in November of 2024, you know, I, I wouldn't, we, we can't discount the fact that he, he may win again. And that, that I don't think that that's a path that our country can go down again. Um, so first doing everything that I can to make sure that he is not on that ticket and then making sure that I, if he, if he is doing everything I can to make sure that he is nowhere near the Oval Office. Wonderful. Um, our, our last question is for um, both of you and it kind of draws upon some of the themes that we've been talking about during this episode about, you know, just how crazy of a world we live in, all the lies and misinformation, um, how far the Republican Party has come and that there really doesn't seem to be any truth left. And given both of your service to our country and coming from a time where, you know, so much wrongdoing happened, how do we get our friends and family and people around us to open their eyes, but most importantly, how to open their hearts again? Um, I don't know if, Alex, do you want to start? Well, yes, I could start. Um, I think I think what transpired here today is the kind of thing that I like to think that many Americans would have an interest in. Um, it sort of begins there. Uh, that people should be interested in their government and in the fact that we have a democracy, we're so fortunate in, in, in living uh, in a democratic country. And I think, uh, and, and I think that it, it takes also a bit of an interest in civil matters uh, disinterest is not a good thing but an interest and the participation in the democracy are, are great things so uh, you know I think I think uh, the democracy is okay today and uh, um, and I, th I think most Americans understand that and are proud of that fact. Uh, I, I, to speak for myself, I loved uh, government. I loved uh, the fact that I loved to work for the government. I liked that. I loved it that I was an Air Force officer. I ate that up. And uh, my dad was a naval aviator, graduated from the Naval Academy, and he was a career naval officer. We lived on naval air stations in most of my youth. And uh, uh, I joined the Air Force and was very proud of my Air Force service. And I loved every minute of it. And I just happened to be cut out for government service. And, um, and so, and recommended it to many young people uh, 
when when I was serving. And you were an exemplary model, so we're grateful to you for that, and thank you for that. Um, and, and Cassie, anything you want to add about what we can do to get, you know, your peers um, from uh, both sides of the aisle to open their hearts and minds? Yeah, briefly, I know I touched on a little bit of this earlier, but I think, um, yeah, it's, it's for some people, I think it's easier said than done, but approaching conversations with an open mind and an open heart, you don't have to agree, whether it's a former Trump administration staffer, campaigner, somebody that worked on Capitol Hill for a member that I would consider maybe part of the MAGA movement or the, that side of the Republican Party. Or just an average American who supports Trump, but you know might not, or is on the fence about doing that. You know, I I know I said this or touched on this earlier too, but it's not a productive environment to isolate those people, whether you are com in complete disagreement with them politically and don't understand how they could ever even call themselves a Republican and how they're not a, on the far left. But if we want there to be change if we want to restore a sense of normalcy not even within the republican party but within our nation and within our democracy and our institutions of government we have to be willing to have the conversations that i think for some people and at points myself were difficult because it, but it also you have to think about that where that other person's coming from and it's a difficult place in a position there if they're willing to maybe talk about that in a productive way. It's the last thing that they want is to feel chastised for feeling that way. You know? So I think on both sides that we need, we need to promote an encouraging environment where people aren't afraid to come forward or to ask questions because we're not, you don't, you don't shame people out of feeling a certain way. Shame just, it, it, in my opinion, it just doesn't work. It, it hasn't worked for the last few, since 2016, 2015 with the Trump movement and it's not going to start working tomorrow. And I'm very fortunate where, you know, I, I did receive vitriol from a small camp on the left and a bigger camp on the right, but there's also been a massive portion of the population that has embraced me. And I think it's completely proper for people to ask me questions um, about why I did what I didn't testify or why I worked for Donald Trump. And I don't shut those questions down, but if I'm going to answer them, I expect for people to be open-minded and to listen to what I have to say. They don't have to agree with it. And the last thing I'll say on that too, you know, if there are people that want to speak out or that people, or if there are people who are finding themselves, hopefully not in a position like I found myself in, but even something remotely similar, it doesn't have to be on the level of what I did. It could just be, you're reevaluating what your belief system is or what you've been a part of. And this is something that didn't really register and stick with me until I became much closer with Liz Cheney. But Liz reminded me that my voice itself is enough and that it it doesn't have to like change comes from an individual an individual is enough to create that momentum of change and i think having that mindset is important too because it doesn't have 
to be some mass movement. It, it, it starts from within. You know, it's so funny you say that, Cassidy, because we mentioned that we recorded the introduction before we started and the introduction says all it takes is one voice. And I think both of you um, embody that so well. And Jill and I, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And thank you so much for having us. This was very, very fantastic. Special. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Cassidy. Uh, I certainly enjoyed it. I hope and I'm sure that our audience learned a lot um, from this. And we look forward to continuing the conversation. And good luck to you in whatever you decide to do next. <laughs> I'm sure you Thank all you. be a part of it. I'm a good career advice giver. I, I If you <laughs> yes, want to brainstorm is. about changing multiple careers, call me up. <laughs> Thank you, Jill. Thank you, Alex. Thank you all so much. Thanks so much. We hope that you found this interview as inspiring and as enlightening um, and as moving and powerful as Jill and I both did. We enjoyed it so much and we hope uh, that you will uh, tune in again next week for another episode of Politic. In the meantime, you can subscribe or follow us wherever you follow your podcasts. And if you watch us, you can also subscribe to us on YouTube at youtube.com slash Politicon. That would help so much. Thank you everyone for watching and we will see you next week. And I suspect some of you are first time viewers because of the guests that we had today, but I promise you every week, past and future, have great guests. And so you may wanna look at some of our former episodes and who we had as guests, but join us for the future. Thank you very much.